Hello, Pioneering Today podcast listeners. I'm really excited to get into today's episode, and we are continuing the trend with talking about depression era tips and recipes to stretch your dollar and incorporate some more frugal mindsets and things into your home. By far, the depression era podcast episodes that we have been doing have been listener favorites by far above and beyond anything else. And one of the reasons I really love them is because it's allowed me to talk to people in my own family, get more of my family heritage and history. And you guys have shared so much of that, of your family's wisdom that has been passed down and tips with me. And so it's a way of keeping um, family heritages alive, being it mine or yours. And I think that's really important in this day and age is to pass down the things that we have learned from the past generations. So I have really enjoyed all of the stories and comments that you guys have left me and emailed me and commented on the blog. So thank you for that, and I hope that you will continue to do that when you listen to today's episode. And this is episode number 44 on the podcast, and this one was really fun for me because the previous two episodes has been mostly tips from my father's side of the family. And this one, I went and talked to my mom, who was not raised during the Great Depression, but her mother, my grandmother, was. And in fact, when my mom was young and growing up, just because it wasn't during the Great Depression, um, hard times for different families. The Great Depression was kind of the entire United States went through a very financial hard time. But I know a lot of families, even families today, still went through hard times. And so these Depression era tips might not always have been exactly from the Depression era, though most of them stem from that. But there are things that anybody who needs to be more frugal or is really really experiencing a monetary hardship can use in their lives today. So when my mom was growing up, quite frankly, they didn't always have groceries. There would be times when they didn't have anything in the cupboards for supper for any of their meals. And sometimes what they did have was just a small amount. So I talked to her and asked, you know, what were some of the recipes and the things that you remember eating when you were growing up when you didn't have, you know, a full cupboard to go through um, and they didn't have grow a really big garden to necessarily always harvest from. Though she did say that her grandma, I mean her mother, my grandmother, excuse me, always canned green beans as well. So that is something, and they were Tar Heel green beans. Both um, sets of my grandparents actually hail from North Carolina. So I thought that was really um, kind of a cool thing that the green beans, that heritage green beans that my family has saved for close to a hundred years, kind of near far back as I can tell. And you can look at that in um, past episodes here about that is a heritage from both sides of my family and something that they both relied on to get them through the year food wise. But one of the other things that she says she remembers is having growing up quite frequently. um, Of course, she doesn't remember exactly how many times, but she said pretty close. She remembers having this as a staple in their dinner menu. So at least probably once a week, sometimes more. And she just she didn't realize until she got older. And I just love this. As a child, it was just a normal thing that you had for dinner because it's what you had at your house. But she didn't realize until she got older and, you know, had dinner at other people's houses and was out on her own that this isn't really a normal staple in most people's rotating menu, things that they cook very often for supper anyways. But what it is, is it's cornmeal mush. Now, in some of the previous Depression Era podcast episodes that we've talked about, 
we talk about the use of cornmeal and cornmeal was something that my grandmother on my father's side used a lot of. And if you go and you look back through like depression era and even further back in really old cookbooks from the early 1900s, late 1800s, cornmeal was something that was used a lot more than it is today because it was inexpensive and it still is inexpensive and people can grow corn. I can grow corn even much more easily at my home with our weather climate here in the Pacific Northwest than I can wheat. And so corn was just something that was grown and it can be fed both for livestock and for people. But as I shared in a, the past episode, my grandmother was a firm, staunch believer that white cornmeal was for people and yellow cornmeal and yellow corn was for livestock. And so she never, ever cooked with yellow cornmeal. I, however, will use whichever I have on hand. <laughs> I don't have that preference that she did. She was very staunch on that. And so I think that's a, a Southern thing. And uh, you guys might have that in your family too. So the cornmeal mush was something and you can make it really easily, but it was something that they had for dinner quite often. And so what you'll do is you have your cornmeal, your ground cornmeal, and you'll have a pot and you will take, you can make as much or as little as you want, but the ratio pretty much stays the same here when you're cooking it. So for this ratio, it's going to be um, one part cornmeal to two parts water. So we would do usually a cup of cornmeal to two cups boiling water. So you'd put your two cups of water in your pot and you'd bring it up to a boil and then you would stir in the cornmeal and you would whisk it so it gets incorporated well. And then you would cook that, you know, anywhere from about five to seven minutes until it thickens up and becomes like a thick porridge and is fully cooked. And then my mom says uh, most of the time that they would sweeten it with, if they usually had butter, she said they always usually had butter. And so they would add butter to it and a little bit of salt. And sometimes if they, as long as they had sugar, then they would add some brown sugar to it. And that was what they would have for dinner. And she said that was all they had for dinner. They just had a pot of cornmeal mush, but she doesn't ever remember being hungry for more. It was filling and there was always enough in the pot for everybody to eat. But you could also do it up savory. You know, you could add in butter and salt and you could grate in some cheese to it as well and do it savory. And another thing that I think would be really yummy is you could add, if you have it, is some maple syrup. Maybe even a little bit of molasses. This time of year as we're going into fall and the holiday season, I have a thing for molasses. I just love molasses. So you could, you know, flavor that up any way that you want to. You could add a little bit of spice in there. You could put a little bit of cinnamon, a little bit of nutmeg, maybe some ginger. But the basis of it is that my mom had growing up was you always added some butter, a little bit of salt, and usually some sugar to it. And that was supper. So it can also be, of course, breakfast. Um, but that was a meal that they had quite frequently. And then another food that they had a lot of as well, and it's very similar, is homemade cream of wheat. So not the kind that you buy in the store. And this is a, another really simple old-timey recipe. And it's the same ratios, but usually with, because hence cream, <laughs> the cream of wheat, is you're going to use two parts milk to one part ground wheat. Now, we grind our own wheat here at our home, and I probably would use the spelt for this. I think that would be really a fantastic cereal. And if you have, um, if you want to know more about grinding your own wheat, we just talked about that um, two episodes ago. So you can check out podcast episode number 42, Tips for Grinding Your Own Wheat and Baking with Fresh Flour. And you can find all of the previous podcast episodes and show notes at melissakinoris.com and just click on the podcast button. So you can make up your cream of wheat and the same thing is you would um, bring the milk to heat and then you would stir in and whisk in. Um, so if you did two cups of milk, then you'd whisk in one cup of the ground wheat. And then you would whisk that in and stir it and let it cook on 
not a hard boil, but like a low, like a simmer. And you let that cook up until usually the same, you know, between five and seven minutes until it's made into a thick porridge. And then you can sweeten that any way you want. I always add a little bit of salt because salt tends to bring out the sweetness when you add it as well. And it also just gives it a little bit more of a, of a more palatable flavor. So again, you can add in some butter to that and then any kind of sweetener that you want. And so that's homemade cream of wheat. And these are both extremely inexpensive foods to make. And so that's why they were depression era and people still use them today when they really need to stretch the budget. And another thing that my mom said that they had a lot of when they didn't have um, very much was her grandfather was an avid hunter. And so they had a lot of wild meat. So they really didn't have when she was growing up beef um, and not a lot of chicken either, but they had the river so that there was fish. But what she primarily remembers is bear meat. And so wild game is definitely something that was a depression era food because it didn't have to be bought in the store if you were a hunter. And so she remembers having a lot of bear meat because obviously there's going to be, well, depending upon the size of the bear, I should say, but most cases you're going to get a lot more bear meat per one animal than you are deer. So they had a lot of bear meat and she says one of the, you know, she remembers her mom just used it like we use beef today is it was just used in all of the recipes was bear bear meat with gravy bear stew bear steak bear roast all of that kind of thing but her very very favorite and this was um a food that my mom's grandmother made so this would have been my great grandmother and unfortunately because so many of the folk back then cooking was such a natural part of their life that they didn't write down the recipes they cooked by the ingredients that they had on hand how much they had on hand by taste, by look, by feel. They didn't use a lot of measurements. And so I don't have this recipe written down that my grandmother used. And I really wish that I did. So if any of your older relatives, you know, make some foods that you absolutely love and they haven't written down the recipe or you don't have it, go to them and ask them to at least guesstimate it and write it down for you now so that you have that to pass on. So she would make mincemeat pie. And so you would take bear meat. And this is a, a very, mincemeat is a very old, old recipe from, you know, way back when people would make mincemeat pies. And so they would take the bear meat and hence the word mincemeat. <laughs> and you would mince it up into little itty bitty pieces. So you would have really small minced pieces of bear meat. And then in that you would have other kinds of fruit and spices. And so it was a sweet and spicy and you would taste the meat just a little bit. It wasn't overpowering like a, a savory, like a pot pie, but it was sweet with the different spices that they were in there. And usually traditionally, you know, there would be fruit up here. We didn't, um, you know, a lot of minced meats will call for um, citrus, dried citrus and candied citrus and that kind of thing. Um, a lot of times the fruits would be soaked, especially traditionally your fruits would be soaked in alcohol as a way to preserve them. And then that's what's used in fruitcakes a lot at the holiday if you're following a very traditional recipe because the alcohol would preserve the fruits for back then when they didn't have refrigeration like we do nowadays, then they would be able to soak it in alcohol to preserve it and then bake it into their foods for holiday cooking. So the mincemeat um, that my mom remembers, it was in a pie and it was sweet and savory. And she said that bear mincemeat pie is her favorite thing ever. Now, we don't do, we raise our own beef cattle. We raise our own pigs for meat. We have our own laying hens. And we also um, raised meat chickens and butcher chickens. But bear meat isn't something, bear isn't something that we hunt right now. 
anyhow, so I've never had bear minced meat pie, but we actually, you know, wild game is something that we are doing more and more of as grocery prices go up. And so it's, you know, from the depression era as well. And so it's really fun as my husband, we actually this right now and this season here in the Pacific Northwest is um, grouse season, which is like basically it's a wild chicken. It's a it's a fowl. It's a small pheasant about this size, a little bit smaller, probably than your really large breeds of chicken. But when we get when my husband gets one, you know, we um, it's enough to feed our our family my husband, myself, and then my two, we have two smaller children that don't eat a lot yet. So, you know, two would be preferable to have some leftovers, but one definitely will feed our family. And so this past weekend, and this was just really a cool thing, is my husband went out, he went out hunting and he got one grouse, was able to get a grouse. And then when he was up hunting, he also came across some chanterelle mushrooms. So right now foraging and getting wild things is a great way to supplement and use, you know, definitely depression eras, they used whatever they could to supplement their food. Now, of course, if you're out, um, you need to make sure that you're following, you know, state laws and foraging where it's legal. And you really need to be careful when you're foraging, especially with wild mushrooms, that you know what kind of mushrooms are safe and that you're foraging and that you know how to cook them properly and all of that. So definitely recommend that going out with an experienced mushroom hunter and also getting a really good field guide that has really good pictures and descriptions so that you make sure that you're getting something that is safe and edible and won't cause any harm because there are poisonous mushrooms out there. So that's just um, my little tip there is really, really make sure you know what you're doing um, if you're going to go out and do that. So it was really awesome because my husband went out and he brought home some chanterelle mushrooms and he also brought home a grouse. And so I had also been making, um, because with the the thing with hunting, (laughs) as many of you know, if you've been a hunter is you're not always guaranteed to bring home something. So just because you go out hunting, unfortunately, doesn't mean that you'll always bring home something to eat. That's always the goal. But so I had, um, saved, I had had, um, a whole chicken that I had roasted a couple weeks ago and actually funny story, but true. Um, it was one of the whole chickens that we had butchered ourselves and we had frozen. And so I thought that I had let it thaw out enough in the fridge when I went to roast it, but apparently the very center of it, I didn't quite get thawed all the way before I roasted it. And so when we first cut into, you know, the top layer of the breast and stuff, it was great. And I put a thermometer in and it said it was up to temperature when I put it in. But perhaps I didn't put my thermometer in quite the right place because long story short, the second day we were eating off of the chicken and I cut down a little bit deeper. I realized that I hadn't gotten that chicken quite cooked all the way through in a couple spots. So I threw it in the freezer knowing that I was going to make some chicken broth later from it. So um, I salvaged it. And so I was making homemade chicken and dumplings actually when my husband went out to hunt just in case he didn't get anything then we would still have supper. And this actually brings me to my next depression era tip for stretching the dollars in your food pantry. And that is making your homemade soups and taking the bones from the meat that you already have and repurposing them into another meal. So homemade stock and homemade broth. So I had the chicken and we had ate on that before I realized that it wasn't quite all the way cooked. Nobody got sick, thank goodness. Um, 
so we had had at least two meals off of that chicken already. And so then I put it into the meat that was still left on it, um, covered it up with some water and added a little bit of apple cider vinegar. Because when you are making stock, which stock is um, traditionally from just the bones. And when you're making broth, then that is from the bones with the meat, with some meat still left on on the bones. So when I was making chicken and dumplings, I was actually making broth, not stock, because I was still boiling and cooking some of the meat that was still on the bones that hadn't gotten all the way done previously. And I added in my, um, you know, I had carrots from the garden and onions and garlic, and I had some sage. We haven't had our first hard frost here yet. So all of my herbs, it's unbelievable. I can't, I can't believe it. We've never been into November and not had a first hard frost that I can recall. So all my herbs are still fresh and growing. It's fantastic. So I went out and got to the little herb garden I have outside the, the door there and picked some sage and tossed in there too. And so I let that simmer into a really nice, um, broth for about an hour and a half. And then I pulled the the bones and the meat out, took the meat that was left off of the bones and put that back in to make the chicken, the dumplings for the chicken and dumplings. And then saved the bones to make stock later on. And so I actually always pretty much have a bag of chicken or turkey bones in my freezer to make stock when mine runs out. And so that is an excellent way. And that was something that they didn't throw things away and re, um, during the depression era. You always reused it. And really, you guys, we need to be doing this more because one, as most of you know, soups are a great way to stretch what you already have into another meal and to make it go further and to feed more people. So, you know, I if I had just served up, you know, the little chopped up cup of carrots that I had, the chopped up cup of onions and the garlic with just the meat by itself, it wouldn't have been enough to hardly feed all four of us for one night, honestly. But by putting that in to the broth and adding the dumplings to it, I ended up with a whole Dutch oven full of chicken and dumplings. And we've had it for dinner two nights and had it for lunch two nights. And I still have enough left over for lunch tomorrow. So I was really able to stretch what we had. And mind you, you know, that was a chicken that had already fed us for some other meals. So I almost got a week's worth of meals out of that one chicken and then adding some vegetables and stuff in it for my family. So that is definitely depression era way of cooking. So if you, especially with um, Thanksgiving coming up, and if you're cooking a turkey, which most of us do, save those bones. And then you can make them into turkey stock. You can do it with chicken. You can do it with your beef bones. So you really want to save those bones and then reuse them into stock. And the reason that so in stock is generally made from the bones without the meat. And so in the bones is a lot of great things, primarily gelatin. And gelatin is a great nourishing food. So using stocks and broth in our kitchens is a really good way, especially when during the winter time, you know, it's cold out and soups really just are comforting and they warm you up. They really stretch the dollar. And they also have some really good, like, you know, chicken, chicken noodle soup. Well, when you have real, and this is real stock made at home traditionally, not chicken broth, unfortunately, that you buy in the store and the cartons and the cans. But when you've made it at home, it has all that goodness in it and you can have time to let it simmer at a lower temperature for longer and really draw out all of those good things that are good for our bodies from the bones. So a couple of tips um, when you're going to make your stock and that is to put your bones in, you can use a big pot or you can use a crock pot. 
totally up to you. Stockpot or crockpot. I love my crockpot because it uses such little energy and I can leave it on and let it do its thing and not worry about watching it so much. Whereas when I have my electric stove on, I tend to not want to, you know, I'll leave my slow cooker, my crock pot on and leave the house. I don't do that with my regular oven. Um, and then again, if you are like us and you're building fires and you have your wood stove, then you can do stock on top of your wood stove. Just make sure you have a good cast iron pan and, or um, excuse me, a Dutch oven, cast iron Dutch oven, and you can use your wood stove heat. And then that's completely frugal um, because you're not using any electricity at all. And that was something during the depression that they were really good on is um, they didn't have all the stuff that we do electronic wise. And so a lot of times they didn't even have electricity. I know when my dad was growing up, they didn't even have electricity. They had an outhouse um, and then their water was a hand pump and the house wasn't wired for electricity. So they used lanterns and candles, um, kerosene lamps, that kind of a thing. So we could definitely use some of those tips. So during the winter and the fall, when we have our wood stove going, I cook on it quite often. In fact, I have a whole post on how to cook on a wood stove and I will put that in the show notes for this episode so you can check that out as well. So when you're doing your stock is you want to put all your bones and a lot of times I will save multiple chicken sets of chicken bones or turkey bones and just stick them all in one big old freezer bag in the freezer until I'm ready to make it. So pull them out and put them in the bottom of your of your stock pot or Dutch oven and then you're going to fill it so that they're all submerged with water. And then one thing that you want to do is, I cannot remember where I read this, but I've read it from multiple sources, actually. I will try and find that in the show notes if I can find one of the, the sources that I read it from. But you want to add some apple cider vinegar to the water. And this helps um, all of the good nutrients and stuff that's in the bones come out into the water. So I usually do, you know, maybe a quarter cup um, if you have multiple carcasses going um, and if other people have any further on this, I would love to see it in the show notes if you do your stock a little bit different or have any other tips. So I will add that in with the water. And then I always add in, if I have any extra vegetables hanging around, I add those in there too. Any herbs, that kind of a thing. So that just has lots of flavor. And I want it to be as nutrient dense and flavorful as possible. So I think by adding in the vegetables too, especially, you know, your, your good root vegetables, um, and especially the really flavorful and savory ones, garlic and onions. I don't think you can ever go wrong adding garlic and onions to something. <laughs> so I add that into almost everything. And then if you have any fresh herbs, you know, like I said, sage was one of um, one that I put in when I did the chicken. I love, I love sage with vegetables and poultry. I think it tastes phenomenal. Uh, rosemary is a, another really good one that you can put in there. So anything like that that you want to put in there. And so you're going to put that in there and you're going to let that simmer um, and going to let it cook just on a low temperature for many, many hours, you can do it overnight. Um, you can do it, you know, for as little as three to four hours, but you really want it to simmer for a long time to get all that stuff out of the bones and into your stock. So after you've let that go and you'll, you'll see as it starts to come out because the water is going to change color and you'll start to see, um, you know, it will thicken up and you'll start to see the gelatin. And, and a lot of times with your, your true stock, it will get really thick like jello. Um, and you'll see little gelatinous, you know, blobs and stuff in there. And once cooled, especially, it will be really thick. So you can then, um, after it's all done, then you're going to dump it through a strainer. And you're going to, you know, of course, strain out all of the bones and all of the spent vegetables. And, you know, that's something, the spent vegetables, you can um, throw, you know, feed that to the chickens, feed the spent vegetables to your pigs if you have it, throw it in the compost pile, and then dispose of the bones, Um however you so deem appropriate. And then you're going to take that stock and use it 
<laughs> you can freeze it. Um, you know, freezing it is great. I tend to like to do my stuff, you know, keep it in the fridge and just and use that up. And then you can also um, you can can your vegetables. Um, I kind of prefer, you know, I'm not sure on this. So if anybody has any info on this, I would love it if you would share it in the comments on the show notes and the blog post for everybody. Because I'm not sure if when you pressure can your stock, and when you pressure can it, really follow a good recipe because you have to cool it to skim any of the fat that's left on top because you can't can it with the fat still in there um, because it's not safe for due to like botulism, the fat needs to be removed before canning it. Now, if you're just freezing it and you want to leave the fat in there, that's totally fine or just stick it in the fridge and you can use it that way. But I'm not sure when you pressure can it because as we know, stock is a low acidic food and it would only be safely canned in a pressure canner. Um, I'm not sure if by pressure canning it, if you, um, if the gelatin because of the high heat would be broken down and it would destroy it or not. Now, I'm not sure. So I, for right now, I'm just freezing my stock. Now, my broth, which is made from the meat and the bones and isn't as thick, it doesn't have as much of uh, the gelatin in it, um, that the broth, um, I have a recipe in my ball complete book of home canning and I'm that is is definitely canned but I'm not sure on the straight stock when it's got that really good thick gelatin in it so if anybody has any insight on that I would love to hear it and I will do some further research on that and we will get that into a future podcast episode for you guys because I'm curious on that too so um, back to the rest of our depression era tips here for stretching the, the pantry and the food budget and this is one that's actually from my husband's grandma and what they did a lot for a, a meal and it's simple and it's frugal and it's quick and it's a great way to stretch the budget is creamed eggs on toast and this is actually one of the recipes that I share in my book pioneering today faith and home the old-fashioned way um, I have quite a few recipes in it and this is one of the family recipes that I share so I'm just going to read you this recipe straight out of the book and it's um so what you do is you take about a quarter stick of butter and you're going to melt it in a medium saucepan over medium heat. And then you're going to take two to three tablespoons of flour. You could use any thickener that you want here. If you want to use cornstarch, you can do that as well. So you're going to stir it in a tablespoon at a time until it makes a really thick paste with the melted butter. And then you're slowly going to add in about a cup of milk. And you're going to whisk this in until the sauce reaches a thick consistency like gravy. And basically, this is what we're making here is a white sauce or white gravy. So if you're going to make this, um, how they did it is they did it with milk and you just make a good white gravy and then add, um, if you're using salted butter, you really don't have to add any salt. If you're using sweet butter, you might want to add a little bit of salt to it. And then they would just take um, either a biscuit or toast and they would do hard boiled eggs and you slice your hard-boiled eggs up over the toast, and then you're going to pour the sauce or the, the cream sauce over top of it, and that was dinner. That was creamed eggs on toast. We've also done it for breakfast, and it's fabulous. And you can also make this sauce, and this is the, the base of the sauce that I use whenever I do. I don't use canned condensed cream of soups. Um, if you read the ingredients on them, they have some questionable um, ingredients in there that we don't do in our family, plus they're not frugal at all. They're almost two bucks a can. And so I will use this um, instead of any recipe that calls for cream of chicken, cream of mushroom, you know, those cream of soup things, green bean casserole, any of those. I use this instead. And if you're using it for like your green bean casserole, 
what I'll usually do instead is we were just talking about that great stock and that great broth that we're making up. Instead of using milk, and that does make it a little bit more frugal too, is I will use the chicken broth or chicken stock instead of the milk. And so then I will make that sauce like that out of it. And that um, you can also, if you're making it instead of to do like your cream eggs on toast, which was a recipe from um, his grandmother that they used quite a bit and it's a depression era recipe for sure. Um, you can add in when you're uh, melting the butter, you can fry up a little bit of saute up some diced onion and garlic. If you're using this for like a casserole and then add in your butter, add the butter after you have everything sauteed, add a little bit more butter in, then add your thickener in and then go ahead and add your broth in. And then that's, so that's what I use in all of my recipes. And that's a great substitute for the condensed cream of different whatever soups um, for your holiday baking. So I hope that um, you will use that as a depression era tip. And I had so much fun in doing research and we've got some, I'm going to do some more of these episodes because I was lucky enough to get my hands on some 1922 and 1938 cookbooks, some really old cookbooks. And so I got some fabulous recipes that um, I need to try out before I share them with you all. So I'm going to be doing that. It's going to be some upcoming episodes. So stay tuned for that because we're going to continue the depression era tips and cooking for saving money. So I want to get us to our reader question of the week. And this is a question I've gotten a couple times in the past couple weeks. And so I wanted to answer that. And it was said, um, you know, we have a homestead and I'm interested in either starting a blog or making money from writing. And so my answer to that is starting a blog is great if your reasoning for it is to share information, share what you're doing, to help people, to connect with people. And those are all very great reasons for starting a blog. If your primary goal to start a blog is to make money, I would suggest that you invest your time somewhere else. Because honestly, I blogged and wrote for two years, generally between, and even to right now, on top of my day job and everything else with our homestead, I generally spend between 25 to 30 hours a week. And it was two years before I ever made a dime doing it. So if you want to invest that much, those many hours a week without any return on it, it's going to have to be because there's a motivating factor other than money to it. Now, now I'm starting to make, um, it's been, oh my goodness, three and a half years, I believe since I first started. And I am starting to make some money now, which is great because it does cost to blog and have your website up. There is a, a cost to all of that. You have to pay for hosting services and different things like that. So, um, but I am still working my same schedule. I haven't cut back any of my hours there. So it's not um, where I'm making anywhere near like a full-time income. So my suggestion would be to look maybe for a part-time job or to doing something else if your primary goal, maybe making some things um, that you could sell from your homestead off of, depending on what kind of stuff you do before you would go the blogging route to make money. So I hope that that helps answer your question there. And then our other new feature that we have going is what I'm reading. So this week, and this really goes hand in hand with answering that question, is a book by Ruth, who is the blogger and editor and owner behind livingwellspendingless.com. And she has a book out called How to Blog for Profit Without Selling Your Soul. 
And I'm actually reading that book right now. So that really goes hand in hand (laughs) with the question that we just answered. So if you want to blog in your primary, you would like to make money, but it's not the only reason that you're blogging, then I would suggest to check this book out. And in the show notes of this, I will include my affiliate link to that. So you can check out that book, the reviews on it, and see if it's something that you're interested in reading as well. So thank you so much for listening, you guys. And I look forward to talking with you next time.